Take your Bible, please, and turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Corinthians, Revelation. Glad you're listening. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Very unusual book. Very difficult book to comprehend exactly what the reason for its inclusion in the scriptures really is. And yet we believe that all scriptures inspired profitable for the Christian who seeks to understand something more of God and his life that he has for us. A book written by Solomon. Solomon says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, chapter 1, as Solomon looks over life, he says this, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. Not a circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea isn't full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. There's no contentment. That's what Solomon is saying. There's no contentment. That which has been is that which will be. That which has been done is that which will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new. Already it's existed for ages which were before us. No remembrance of earlier things and also of later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind, don't forget we're talking about Solomon's mind now, a wise man, wise above all. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with, to try to figure out what life is all about. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be found out or counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed the wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. May God bless this unusual portion of his word. There are times, times that perhaps you experience, times that I experience, when um, I look at some of the problems that we have problems that the people that I work with have, the problems that I have, the problems that my friends have. I look at the stresses and the complexities and the pressures and the problems and the things that seem to be engulfing people today. And I say, are there really any answers? Are there really any answers? Or is all of this material that, that I try to give out, that other men who believe the scripture try to teach, is it, is it really worth or is it just so much, so much words? 
There's so much verbiage that sounds good, but rather cliche It doesn't really provide us with the kind of contentment that all of us would like. Is there a, a quiet, deep, confident peace available in spite of circumstances? Or is it the case, as I think many of us from time to time assume, is it the case that the people that seem to be content in the Lord are the people whose circumstances are going pretty well? And their contentment really isn't from God. Their contentment is from the circumstances. Things are going pretty well for them, so it's no big deal, no problem. They can praise the Lord. They have money and health and family and uh, educational circumstances are good and uh, no, no problem. So they're happy. Why? Because of the Lord? No. Because of the circumstances. Then I read the scripture, and I find that Paul made that staggering claim that we discussed last week when Paul said, I've learned how to live completely and totally independently of my circumstances. I've learned that my joy depends on nothing external to me. I've learned that I'm adequate. I have all the resources I need within me to accept everything. I'm content. Bring on what you may. Take away all that I have. No matter what happens, if you give me lots of good things, I'll enjoy them and I'll be content. Take away all the good things, family, friends, health, money. Take it all away and I'll be content because I've learned a secret, Paul said. And that intrigued me when I kind of read that, not for the first time, but it hit me maybe for the first time, that there's a secret here that apparently I don't know much about. So I began thinking about it. What's the secret of contentment that Paul speaks of in Philippians chapter 4? And this series is the outgrowth of that thinking, a series entitled The Secret of Contentment. Last week I discussed what contentment is and how not to find it. Next week I'm going to discuss what the secret is. What is the secret Paul talked about? The week after, I want to discuss how to make the secret practical, how to make it really work. And the last week, the fifth week, I want to discuss how the body, how we as a group of believers who gather together, can help each other appropriate the truth that's contained in this secret that I'll be sharing next week. Today, what I want to do is to lay some groundwork, which to some will seem rather irrelevant. I don't believe it is. I want to lay some groundwork for the subject some groundwork which I believe needs to be understood if this secret that we're going to talk about next week is not going to simply bounce off our backs and sound like one more evangelical cliche, one more good bunch of words that means nothing to us. If we're going to really learn the secret, then I believe there are some things we need to believe. And so I entitled this sermon, What You Must Believe in Order to Learn the Secret of Contentment. Now let me at the outset introduce a term that perhaps many of you know. Some of you perhaps don't. Term, world view. Y'all know what a world view is? It's very important. Everybody has one. Y'all have a world view. You might not know what it is. You might never have thought of it this way. But everybody here has a world view. And if you have the wrong world view, you'll never get the secret. If you have the right world view, you're in a position where you can learn the secret. What's a world view? A worldview is simply a term referring to the way we think about life in general. Or more precisely, a worldview is a set of assumptions, or presuppositions. A set of assumptions about our world which we either consciously or many times unconsciously hold. What's our worldview? What do we really think is happening in this world? Now when you see me get out after church and get in my car and take a little piece of metal shaped in a funny form and stick it in a hole in the steering column and turn it, You'll understand something about my worldview. You'll understand that in my worldview, I believe the world is rather predictable. 
I believe the world operates according to orderly laws of mechanics. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I'm expecting something to happen. The motor will start and I'll drive away. That's what I'm expecting to happen. I have a worldview that life is basically orderly. Now, suppose you see me handling a problem in my life, and you see me handling it by retreating from it, and by simply complaining or griping, or just doing nothing. Then you'll learn something about my worldview. You'll learn that my worldview basically is something like this, that at that particular moment, the world is in hopeless confusion, and there's nothing I can do to straighten it out. So I'll just sit back and take the mess. If that's how you see me handling problems, then that's my worldview. That's what I think about life. Now, the critical thought that I want to convey today is that there is only one worldview which includes within it the secret of contentment. And I want this morning to briefly discuss that worldview, which if you reject, you'll have no contentment. A lot of us, as I will discuss this worldview briefly, you'll respond by saying, well, that's just the old stuff we hear every Sunday. And, and it will be. Praise God, it's the old stuff that's preached here regularly. And yet it's the kind of a thing which we often can lose sight of. It's the kind of a worldview which we say, yes, we believe, but on Monday we operate according to a different worldview. And I'm going to discuss a number of other worldviews drawn from the book of Ecclesiastes. Some other ways of viewing reality, of viewing what's happening, which if we hold, and a lot of us do without knowing it, we just can't get a hold of God. It doesn't seem to become real. He doesn't become real in our lives. You must understand this worldview. It determines whether or not you're going to be content. It determines whether or not you're going to learn the secret of contentment, which I'm going to discuss next week. And by the way, would you all pray that I'll figure it out by next week? This is hard. The first worldview, the one that you're all expecting me to talk about now, and the one that we believe is true, and the one that you must hold, and next week you'll see why, the one that you must hold if you're going to understand the secret, the first worldview, uh, if you were reading a textbook on uh, philosophy of religion, you'd have a chapter entitled Christian Theism. Christian Theism. T-H-E-I-S-M. Christian Theism. The only worldview within which you can learn contentment. This worldview simply states that there really is a God. It starts with that. But as you look around, you see a microphone and a pulpit, and you see a watch, and you see uh, chairs, and you see people. But we say that there's something in this world, we believe there's more reality than what we can see. We believe there really is a God, a personal being, who's infinite. It's hard to understand. Mother was once teaching her daughter, that her five-year-old daughter, that there really is a God, and that God is everywhere. And the daughter said, Mommy, does that mean that God's in the living room? And mother said, Yes, God's in the living room. And then she said, uh, well, Mommy, does that mean that God is here in the kitchen with us right now? And Mother said, yes, that's exactly what it means. And the little girl said, Mother, am I stepping on God? And the mother thought a minute, and she said, well, what does she think that I mean when I say God is here? You see, in a very different sense, God is not here quite like the watch is here, quite like my coat is here. God is a spirit being. We can't see him, but we as Christians believe that he's here. We don't see him, we don't touch him, we believe in God. He's an infinite personal being. All else hangs on that. We also believe that God created man and created man in his image as a personal being. I can think and choose and feel and reflect and, and, and move. I'm a personal being. I can love, I can care, I can be sad, I can be happy, I can relate to you because you're a personal being. I'm a personal being. God says, as a personal being, you've rejected me. You've gone your own way. You said, I don't want you anymore. And then God said... I've given you the right to make that choice, to go against me. And if you make that choice, there are consequences. You won't have me. 
But then God says, because you've made that choice, I've got to punish you. The punishment is separation from me forever. But I want you back. I, 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 I love you. I want you back. So God became a man. He did what I couldn't do. He paid the price of my sin, my rebellion. He came to the cross. Jesus Christ did. God, the second person of the Trinity. And he endured separation from God, which he didn't deserve, which I deserve. And now when I say, Lord Jesus, I understand reality. There is a God. I'm really made in his image. Life really amounts to getting to know you, but I'm separate from you because I've sinned, but Christ died for my sins. Lord Jesus, right now, I trust you as my Savior. At that point, something tremendous happens. I become God's son. I have life with God. Now God says, Larry, you're mine. Now we have some work to do. Let's get to it. What life is really all about, this is the Christian worldview, what life is really all about is, Larry, you now have the tremendous ability to live for me. You can choose to live as I want you to. You can be the person I want you to be. You can choose that. I have the capacity now to choose to be what God wants me to be. That's a Christian worldview. Most of us here hold some form of that. But you know, it's very easy to slip off of that. It's very easy to slip off of that worldview into several other views that are prominent today. The first is a view, the first error. And if you hold this error in your practice, you'll never learn contentment. It is intimated by Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 13. Solomon says, I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. What a grievous task. Solomon is basically saying, he's reflecting a position which modern-day philosophers would call deism. D-E-I-S-M. Deism, not theism, there is a God, but deism, which is a teaching that, yes, there is a God, but he couldn't care less about us. He made the world like a clock maker makes a clock. He wound it up and he took off. And now it's up to us. Figure out what to do with this mess. That's deism. And here Solomon is saying, I've got to figure out life. Yes, there's a God, but he's up there somewhere. And I have to work at this thing under the sun. That's the key phrase in all of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. I've got to work at life under the sun. I can't depend on God. He's kind of up there. I have no relationship with him. He made me. Yes, all that's true. But he's gone. Anybody ever feel like that? As you pray that your prayer life is really deistic? God really isn't interested. He isn't there. But you pray because Christians are supposed to pray. Are you a deist when it comes to praying? Somebody has captured the essence of deism in a, in a revised version of the Genesis account that goes like this. In the beginning, God created man. When man first became conscious, he blinked, looked around, and politely asked, what's the purpose of this? Everything must have a purpose, God asked. Certainly, said man. Then I leave it to you to think of one for all of this, said God, and he went away. That's deism. That's deism. I've got to make it on my own. Contentment in deism, then, is simply I've got to figure out some way to make all this work. Because God sure isn't doing much. He's forgotten. If you think that way, you're a deist. If that's your worldview that God is not personally involved with you, you'll never learn contentment. It's impossible. There's no contentment available. A second worldview, a third actually, first theism, then deism, a third, a third worldview is contained in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and verses 3 through 10, let's look at those. Chapter 2 and verse 3, Solomon says, I explored of my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. 
And then in verses 4 through 9, he elaborates what he did. He, he built houses and planted vineyards and made gardens and got a lot of fruit trees and made ponds of water and bought female and male slaves and he had homeborn slaves and flocks and herds and silver and gold and concubines and became great and wise. In verse 10, in all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Naturalism is this third philosophy. First theism, then deism. And now Solomon is talking about a philosophy of life, a worldview, a way that a lot of us live our lives, called naturalism. What's naturalism? If theism says there's a God who's personal, who's involved with me, who cared about me and could die for me, if theism says, yes, there's a God, but he couldn't care less, then naturalism goes the next step and says there's no God at all. There's no God at all. Never was one. God not only is dead, but he always has been dead. He never existed. All that exists is matter. All that we can see is all that there is. There's no spirit world. There's no supernatural. This is it. So what do you do? Well, you eat, drink, and be merry, but tomorrow you die. That's the best you can do. The naturalist, I wonder how many naturalists we have here this morning, practicing naturalists. The naturalist says, the way to find contentment, the root to contentment, since there really is no God, my worldview says that there's no God for me, as the fool says, there's no God for me, therefore I'm going to live my life irrespective of him, I'm going to get all that I can, I'm going to milk this life dry, I'm going to build houses, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to... I'm going to divorce a disagreeable spouse. I'm going to fudge on income tax. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do something else. I'll go to church to keep up appearances. But I'm not going to live for anybody but me. That's naturalism. Naturalism says that contentment basically comes from a comfortable set of circumstances. What's the secret of contentment for a naturalist? Get your world arranged so it's comfortable. If you can't get your world arranged so it's comfortable, well, that's just tough. Maybe eventually we'll figure out a way to do it for you. Until then, just hang in there. That's naturalism. There's a big problem with naturalism. Once you leave out God, once there's no God in your thinking, then all that's left is matter. Now think this through with me. All that's left is matter. There's no intelligence behind it. And now I become no more than a billiard ball, which moves in whatever direction the other billiard ball hits me. If it hits me in this direction, I'll go that way. If it hits me real hard, I'll go farther. I'm completely controlled by preceding matter. I'm a nothing. I'm a big nothing. I'm a collection of molecules, period, that's totally controlled by whatever previous collection of molecules happened to impinge upon me. Naturalism doesn't want to go that far and admit that, but those are the, those are the necessary implications of naturalism. Leave God out of the picture, and all you have left is brute matter that's totally controlled, that has no design, no purpose. It's just there. That's all you have. So naturalism fails, logically, and it moves into a fourth worldview. When you carry naturalism through to its final conclusion, you reach a fourth worldview, and it's called nihilism. N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. Nihilism. Nihilism. Nihilism is the natural child of naturalism. First, you believe there's a personal God. He cares about you. You have worth. Your life makes sense. No matter what happens to you, your life still makes sense. That's theism. Deism says that your life doesn't make sense as far as God is concerned. He's taken off. So you do the best you can. Naturalism says there's no God at all, so I'll do the very best that I can. I'll make my life as comfortable as possible. Nihilism says, wait a minute. If you're really a naturalist, that means you're nothing. Nihilism says my life is one big stupid accident. 
That's the worldview of nihilism. It means nothing, my life. It's going nowhere. It's an accident. In nihilism, contentment is absolutely impossible. Despair is necessary. This is the conclusion of side one. Please turn the cassette over at this point for the continuation of this message. That sense of anguish down deep, what's it all about? Doesn't make a bit of sense. That's nihilism. Samuel Beckett has captured the essence of nihilism in a most interesting and miserable play. A play called um, Breath. Samuel Beckett's a playwright. He wrote many plays. One in particular is a very nihilistic play. It's called Breath. It'll give you some idea of what nihilism really is and see whether or not you're really a practicing nihilist. If you are, you can't learn contentment. It's impossible. His play called Breath lasts 35 seconds. It has no human actors at all. The only props in his play are a pile of rubbish. When the curtain draws back and the play begins, on center stage, the only prop is this big pile of junk, big pile of rubbish, which is lit by a light that begins dim, then it brightens, but never fully, then it recedes again into dimness. There are no words in the whole play of 35 second duration. It opens, when the curtain opens and the rubbish is there and the light is dim, there's a cry, a recorded cry. Then as the light gains intensity, there's a big inhalation, and then uh, the lights go down again, and a second recorded cry. Beckett is saying, that's life. Your life's a pile of rubbish. You cry when you start, you cry when you finish, and you sigh in between. Doesn't that just lift your spirits? <laughs> Do you realize that most people today down deep are nihilists? Their life's a pile of rubbish. Have you ever talked to somebody who's utterly despairing? Have you ever felt the pain of our times? Have you ever felt the nihilistic wave that has swept the country? Have you ever felt that? That sense of anguish down deep? What's it all about? Doesn't make a bit of sense. That's nihilism. Samuel Beckett has captured the essence of nihilism in a most interesting and miserable play. A play called um, Breath. Samuel Beckett's a playwright. He wrote many plays. One in particular is a very nihilistic play. It's called Breath. It'll give you some idea of what nihilism really is and see whether or not you're really a practicing nihilist. If you are, you can't learn contentment. It's impossible. His play called Breath lasts 35 seconds. It has no human actors at all. The only props in his play are a pile of rubbish. When the curtain draws back and the play begins, on center stage, the only prop is this big pile of junk, big pile of rubbish, which is lit by a light that begins dim, then it brightens, but never fully, then it recedes again into dimness. There are no words in the whole play of 35 second duration. It opens when the curtain opens and the rubbish is there and the light is dim, there's a cry, a recorded cry. Then as the light gains intensity, there's a big inhalation, and then uh, the lights go down again and a second recorded cry. Beckett is saying, that's life. Your life's a pile of rubbish. 
You cry when you start, you cry when you finish, and you sigh in between. Doesn't that just lift your spirits? <laughs> Do you realize that most people today, down deep, are nihilists? Their life's a pile of rubbish. Maybe it's because this has happened to them. This has gone out of my life. That's been out of my life. This has taken place. My life is no more than a pile of rubbish. The light is on a little bit now. I wish the light would go off and the second try would come and I'd be through. That's nihilism. Maybe some here have given up because you're nihilists. Maybe some who have looked at your circumstances and said, it doesn't make any sense. You can give me all the Christian talk you want to. My life's a pile of rubbish. The sooner I get out of the picture, the better. Listen, folks, that isn't true. It isn't true. There really is a God. A God who cares. A God who says you have worth. A God who says your life makes sense. My life makes sense, yes, no matter what. But if you know what's happening in my life, if you knew the sexual problem, if you knew that personal problem, if you knew what's happened in my family, if you knew all that, you'd say my life is rubbish. No. God says no matter what's happened, your life has worth. That's theism. Nihilism says, nah. It's a waste. No possibility of meaning. None at all. Solomon reflected nihilism. Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. Verses 3 through 10 are naturalism. And verse 11 is kind of a logical consequence of naturalism when you realize that all that you do, all your hard work, amounts nothing anyhow. Verse 11, Solomon speaking as a nihilist says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity, futility, emptiness, and striving after wind. What an illustration, grabbing for wind. You can't get it. And there was no prophet under the sun. Look, at, look again at chapter 6, verse 7. All a man's labor, chapter 6 and verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth. As a naturalist, that's all there is. Matter, your mouth, your physical needs. All a man's labor is to take care of his naturalistic needs. And yet the appetite, the soul, is not satisfied. Naturalism doesn't satisfy I'm more than a machine. I'm more than a thing. I'm more than a complicated dog, as B.F. Skinner teaches, well-known psychologist from Harvard. I'm more than just a thing, a machine that's totally controlled and predictable by my environment. I'm a person. And if I live in the naturalism and try to get more cars and houses and money and all this sort of a thing and pleasures and fun and trips and clothes, if I live for that, I'm feeding my mouth, but my soul remains absolutely empty. And I become a nihilist. What's the point of any of it? There's no satisfaction whatsoever. Notice the downward trend. Theism. There's a God. He cares. He loves. You're a sinner, but he died. Belong to him and live for him. Theism. Reject that. You have theism. God is now reduced to an uncaring. There, but uncaring. Naturalism, he's gone altogether. The natural result is nihilism. Utter despair. Wouldn't you think by that by this time people would say, well, gee, leaving theism didn't work. Let's go back. But man doesn't seek after God. Naturally speaking, we don't want God. We want to find solutions apart from God. The Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. What's foolishness? A desire to make sense of life apart from God. Can't be done. But we're foolish, so we try to do it. And all of your modern-day religions, philosophies, psychologies, the whole bunch, they're all designed to provide a solution for nihilism. The first... Going back up now, theism, deism, naturalism, nihilism, now we climb back up into a more hopeful sphere, first of all with existentialism. Existentialism, a word which covers all sorts of things. Look at Exodus chapter 3, or Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And look at verse 11. 
He has made everything appropriate at his time. He also has set eternity in their heart. That's the phrase that I want. He has set eternity in their heart. The existentialists believe something similar to that. He says, yes, there's something in me that demands more than what this world can offer. I agree, nihilist, says the existentialist. I agree with you, the world's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. You try this, you try that, try something else, you try to get a new house, a new this. Nothing satisfies. It's absurd. But the existentialist says, I have the solution, the way to be content. Recognize you're free from that world, and you just choose. <laughs> you're free to do anything you want to do. You're free as a bird. Do your own thing. Whatever turns you on is what you ought to do. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10 says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. Make your choices. Don't be bound by tradition. Don't let yourself get squeezed into a dead orthodoxy. Don't be squeezed into a dead morality, the Ten Commandments and all that. Do whatever you really want to do. You'd be free. Fritz Pearls. Some of you know about him. He's a therapist. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's saying. In a more sophisticated form, Victor Frankl saying the same thing. He's saying just choose anything, and the good in life is the choosing. Are you free? Just choose. There's a problem with that, though. Last part of verse 10 in chapter 9. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all you might, because there's no activity or planning or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. You can choose all you want, but you can't choose not to die. No freedom there. You're not free not to die. So that didn't work too well. As a solution to nihilism, people weren't satisfied because death messed up the whole idea. Did man go back to God at that point? No. Another idea. That's pantheism. Pantheism. Pan, P-A-N, theism. Theism says there's a personal God. Pantheism says God's everywhere. God's everything. He's not a person. He's just that mysterious life energy that holds everything together. He isn't a he, he's an it. I was at a banquet a while ago, and a reverend pastor was asked to give thanks. Maybe I mentioned this here before, I don't recall. He was asked to, I think, say the blessing over the food at this banquet. And usually, if somebody's asked to give thanks, they might stand up and say, shall we pray, or let's bow our heads as we talk to the Lord, or whatever. That's what would happen in this circle. But in those circles, which were pantheistic, the man got up and said, let me now utter a few appropriate words. I thought, to whom? Who are you talking to? The answer is nobody. The answer is there's some impersonal energy, and I'll just acknowledge that there is this energy, it's not a person, by just uttering a few appropriate words. Pantheism says that contentment does not lie in doing like the theist, the deist, the naturalist, the nihilist, existentialist, but all have us believe, pantheism says that contentment comes not from doing, but from being. Just be. You have a problem? Forget about it. Just tune into some mantra. Meditate. Do you ever wonder why the Maharashi, Mahish Yogi, whatever his name is, do you ever wonder why he always has that irritating little smile on his face? <laughs> No one has a smile on his face. He's found the secret of serenity, which basically is this. Pretend you don't exist. Pretend you don't exist. 
Become one with Atman. Become one with Om. Become one with Brahman. All Eastern pantheistic words. Become one with ultimate reality. What's ultimate reality? It's impersonal. Cease to be a person. And you'll cease to feel. You'll cease to care. You'll cease to worry. You'll cease to hurt. You'll have peace. It's like taking a rock and chiseling a smile on it. That's what it is. But modern man says that contentment, the contentment of being a happy rock, is not appealing to me. I'm more than a rock. I feel. I care. Isn't there some way to find contentment without denying all of my feelings and my whole personality? Isn't there some way? And we say, yes, Jesus Christ. And they say, no, we have one more effort. There's one last worldview that people are trying, and it's called this. I call it this. Human theism. Human theism. You read the literature that's coming out in psychology journals. The last issue of the American Psychologist, which I get, opened up with an article on a, compar a comparison and contrasting between Zen meditation and behavioral techniques of self-control. Now, what they're doing is they're taking this meditation, religious kind of thing from the East, bringing it into Western thought forms of science, and saying that if we think this thing through, we believe we can unlock the secrets of the universe by plumbing the depths of a human consciousness, and we can alter states of consciousness, and we can alter reality. If that made no sense to you, that's okay. I don't quite understand it at all myself. John Lilly a man who believes in this. George Leonard used to be the editor of Look. Mr. Boyce, president of a bank in Chicago. This is not just some lunatic fringe. These are people that are being taken seriously today. What they're saying is, if we can just alter our state of consciousness, not cease to be a person, but go deeper within ourselves, go higher, expand, then all these things that look like they're bad will realize are really good, they're really different. And as persons, we'll be in charge of everything. It's the final exaltation of the self. That's what it is. It's the final exaltation of the self. One of its advocates, a man named Spangler, he said that when you think it through, it makes me God. Because I'm in charge. You have problems? Tune in to new levels of consciousness. The college campuses today are eating this stuff up. It isn't some remote thing somewhere else. It's here. Y'all heard of biofeedback? That's a real useful clinical application. I have no objection to it. But it springs from this worldview of human theism. The cure for problems is to alter consciousness. The route to contentment is to always is to enter into a deeper level of consciousness where things that look now to be one way will look to be a different way. And you can, as a matter of fact, control them because of all the tremendous psychic energy you have within you. That's human theism. It's interesting. Theism says that God is God and man is man come full circle through all the positions and what do you end up with? Man is God. The final blasphemy. Trace the whole thing down. Theism. There's a God. Your life has meaning. It makes sense. Forget about that. Go to deism. God is an impersonal. Well, he's a personal God, but he isn't involved. Reduce him to that level. Naturalism says there is no God. Do your best. Nihilism says my best is zero. I'm nothing. I amount to nothing. Existentialism says, well, that's true, but live anyhow by your choices. Pantheism says, yes, but your choices will kill you. You'll eventually die. So therefore, uh, you can bring yourself up into a, the higher reality of impersonal 
the impersonal God and become a happy rock? And then human theism says, wait a minute, I don't want to lose my personality. I want to be the person that I really am. I'm in charge of the world. I'm God. And that's the trace of human thinking. A deistic worldview, with this we'll close. A deistic worldview. Let's see if you're deists. See who's a deist here today. A deistic worldview would lead to this attitude when you face your problems. God isn't interested in me, but I'll keep trying. Maybe I'll get content somehow. If that's your approach to problems, you're a deist. And next week's secret won't mean a thing to you. A naturalistic worldview would lead to this attitude when you're facing your problems. I'll use all my resources to make life as comfortable as possible for me, and maybe there I'll find contentment. If I can just get enough material goods, enough free time, enough vacations, enough money, enough homes, enough clothes, then I'll be happy. That's naturalism. If you're a naturalist, next week's secret will mean nothing to you. A nihilistic worldview would lead to the attitude, there's no point in trying at all. I quit. I quit. If that's your attitude, that there's no point in trying, the secret next week will mean nothing because your mind is closed. An existentialist worldview would lead to this attitude in facing your problem. The world is stupid, so I'll exercise my freedom. I won't be controlled by the world. No one will tell me what to do. I'll do my thing. Then I'll be content. A pantheistic worldview would lead to this attitude in facing your problems. I'll do nothing other than the essentials as far as physical life is concerned. But what I'll try to do is quietly experience peace through meditation and solitude. There I'll find some contentment and inactive, passive, withdrawing from your problems. That will not lead to contentment. Next week's secret will mean nothing to you if you're a pantheist. A human theistic worldview would lead to this attitude. Within me is limitless power to reach a state of understanding where everything is wonderful. It's interesting, the new death researchers. Have you heard about that? Research on death. You know what they're saying, the secular researchers on death, that, that death is a transition from one level of consciousness to a much better level of consciousness. Without the cross without the cross. Death is an experience not to be feared. Death is an experience to be welcomed because you're moving into a wonderful level of consciousness, that altered state which we're trying to reach while we're still living here. That's what the death researchers are teaching. Kubler-Ross done some excellent work on death research. That's what she says. Most of them are saying that now. It's frightening. They're taking a sting out of death without the cross. Satan wins again. The human theist says, I'll strive for that new consciousness through whatever looks stimulating and I'll thereby create my own contentment. A Christian worldview, the one that you must hold if you're going to get it, get it together, the one that you must hold if next week's secret will make a difference to you is this. A Christian worldview would lead to this attitude, I belong to God, my life makes sense, it's lived for His purposes, I understand what life is all about no matter what happens in my world, in my marriage, in my home, with my kids, with my money, with my health, I'm still living for God, life makes sense, that's my worldview. It's all about serving the Lord. And with that attitude, with that attitude of Christian theism, what we just call Christianity, biblical Christianity, with that attitude, next week, as we discuss the secret, it could be transforming. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge our extreme and utter dependence on you. Lord, how easy it is to slip into a false worldview, to think of you as not caring, like a deist would, to think of you as not even there, like a naturalist would. To think of life as being just bad, meaningless, like a nihilist would. Sometimes, Lord, we just try to choose and force and burst our way out of it, like an existentialist would. Other times we retreat and just try to be quiet and meditate meaninglessly, like a pantheist would. 
And Lord, there may be some who even are figuring that they're such the master of their own soul, the captain of their ship, that they're going to make it all work out right like a human theist would. Lord, help us to be theists in our practice as well as in our creeds, to believe that you're there, that our life makes sense because you've died to redeem us. And now you've given life purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.